Welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. Today, we're going to go deeper on the U.S. government refugee program, which has been in the news recently after the Biden administration appeared to backtrack on its earlier commitment to increase the number of refugees resettled in the United States from abroad this year. The program to resettle refugees uh, to the United States has existed since 1980 with strong bipartisan support across the board. And USERF has long advocated for a robust uh, resettlement program as a way for the U.S. to provide safe haven to some of the world's most vulnerable refugees, as well as to support the countries and communities hosting large numbers of individuals who have fled persecution or conflict. Refugee resettlement is a separate program from the process through which individuals apply for asylum at the U.S. border, which has also been in the news lately. USERF has also reviewed and made recommendations relevant uh, to that process, which we'll also uh, talk about. We also held a hearing in February on refugees fleeing religious persecution about ways in which the U.S. government could better protect and support individuals fleeing religious persecution through our refugee resettlement program, the asylum system, and overseas assistance. Today, we're fortunate to have with us USERF Director of Research and Policy, Elizabeth Cassidy, to go deeper on these issues. She's worked on refugee and asylum issues throughout her nearly 14-year career uh, on the Commission staff. Uh, Elizabeth, welcome uh, to the show today. Thanks, Dwight. Great to be here. All right. Well, why don't, what, why don't we start out with, can you explain uh, what the refugee ceiling is, uh, why it uh, has been in the news uh, recently, as I mentioned, and, and how the uh, program works. Um, sure, absolutely. So the U.S. refugee program allows a very small number of the millions of people displaced abroad to start new lives in the United States. The refugees who are ultimately resettled uh, through this program stay outside the United States while going through the entire process. They're first screened by the UN Refugee Agency, which is called UNHCR, um, for qualifying as refugees and also for being priorities for resettlement. They then again are screened by the US government, again for legal eligibility as a refugee, and they undergo extensive security and health vetting. Just the US part of this process typically takes 18 months to two years. And the individuals usually were initially displaced from their homes long, long before um, that. So what the ceiling is for each fiscal year, each U.S. government fiscal year, the president sets a, a number, a numerical ceiling or upper limit as to how many refugees from abroad can be resettled in the U.S. that year. In, in recognition that religious freedom violations often drive displacement, IRFA, USERF's implementing legislation, requires that the president consider religious persecution in determining the ceiling. So between 1980, from the beginning of the program, and 2016, the ceiling typically was about 95,000 each year, and about 80,000 refugees actually were resettled each year. The Trump administration, however, repeatedly set much lower ceilings, 
45,000 for fiscal year 2018, 30,000 for fiscal year 2019, 18,000 for fiscal year 2020, and 15,000 for the current fiscal year, which was the lowest um, ever in the program's history. Actual resettlements these years were typically even lower than the ceiling number. For example, fewer than 12,000 refugees were actually resettled in, in FY20, the, the past fiscal year, although that was also impacted by um, the, the coronavirus pandemic. USERF had consistently called on the Trump administration to return the ceiling to the historic norm of around 95,000. And in February, we welcomed um, when the Biden administration expressed its intent to raise the ceiling for this current fiscal year to 62,500, and then for next fiscal year to 125,000. Unfortunately, last week, um, we were disappointed when the Biden administration issued an emergency determination, leaving the ceiling for this year at 15,000. However, it, it later said the president would raise the ceiling in May. So USERF is calling on the administration to raise the ceiling for this fiscal year as soon as possible, ideally to the 62,500 that um, they in, said they intended in February, but at the very least um, there are some 30 to 35,000 refugees in the pipeline who have been fully vetted and are ready to travel. And, and we hope the Biden administration will resettle those individuals as quickly as possible. We also hope that the Biden administration will set the ceiling for the next fiscal year at the 125,000 that they previously expressed. Now, can you tell us who qualifies uh, as a refugee for the purposes of the program? And and how many, uh, if you have a, a, a general idea of how many have been resettled uh, over the years and uh, how many continue to be uh, displaced abroad? Uh, sure, absolutely. So to qualify as a refugee under both international and U.S. law, the person must be outside their own country and unable or unwilling to return because of persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution based on one of five grounds. And those grounds are race religion, national origin, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Since 1980, more than 3 million refugees have been resettled to the United States from abroad. This, however, is, is just a drop in the bucket of the number of, of people displaced abroad, especially right now. Um, in the last few years, we've seen increasing uh, historically high levels of global displacement with um, the number estimated by the UN Refugee Agency as of mid-2020 of over 80 million people are forcibly displaced. This includes more than 30 million who are outside their own countries and the rest displaced within their own countries. Um, it's really a, quite, a, quite a shocking number. This means that 1% of the world's population is displaced e either within their own countries or abroad, and 40% and of those displaced are children. The top source countries for refugees are Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Burma right now. And most of these um, refugees and displaced people are hosted in developing countries that are economically or politically un unstable. Um, uh, this, this means that in many cases, refugees and the internally displaced are vulnerable to hunger, disease, poverty, exploitation, and even extremist ideologies. 
With the numbers so large, only a minuscule percentage are eligible for resettlement in a third country such as the U.S. Um, so as a result, both the U.N. Refugee Agency and the U.S. government have priority categories um, of refugees for resettlement. This is based on particular groups that are extremely vulnerable and, and for whom no other um, solution is viable, meaning uh, it's not viable for them either to return home or to um, settle permanently in the country where they're being hosted. Because of this, um, these huge numbers, the US, USERF also supports the US government continuing to provide humanitarian aid to the displaced abroad and the, country, and the countries and communities that are hosting them. And also, of course, efforts to ultimately create the conditions that ultimately would allow for individuals who are displaced to return home in cases where that's possible. Now, with the, with those uh, with that number so high, with so many individuals uh, displaced all over the world, uh, can you tell us how how does the U.S. determine who to prioritize? Uh, and you kind of alluded to that uh, for you know for resettlement. And in terms of those specifically fleeing religious persecution, uh, what groups does USERF you know deem as the highest priorities in its uh, advice to the U.S. government? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, the U.S.'s approach has typically used both regional allotments and then also um, groups of uh, priority concern. So in terms of regional allotments, this is based on levels of displacement. So within the ceiling, a certain number from the Middle East, a certain number from Asia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Trump administration instead focused on categories, one of which was victims of, of religious persecution. Um, however, given the lower overall ceilings and overall numbers of, of resettled refugees during those years, the number of resettled religious minority refugees actually dropped. The Biden administration has returned to the regional allocations. Uh, as I mentioned, the U.S. also has um, prioritize certain groups of special humanitarian concern to the United States. Um, so that what this means is that refugees in certain categories can apply directly to the U.S. refugee program without going through the UNHCR process first. So one example of this is a longstanding um, program uh, called the Lautenberg program, which USERF has long supported, um, which, which um, allows persecuted religious minorities from Iran to apply directly for um, resettlement to the U.S. government and, and, and then be processed that way. Um, in February, the Biden administration said it was considering several new priority categories, um, including um, several religious groups of great concern to USERF. Um, these, uh, these were Turkic Muslim refugees from China, Rohingya Muslim refugees from Burma, and Iraqi and Syrian religious minority refugees. Um, so we do hope that the administration follows through uh, on, on creating these categories and, and and prioritizing um, members of these uh, these severely persecuted religious groups for resettlement. Uh, also in the news has been the, uh, the process of asylum, obviously, and as those come to the U.S. border. Can you give us a sense of uh, how does that process, the, the asylum uh, process when those uh, seeking asylum versus the refugee resettlement? Uh, can you unpack that a little bit? 
Uh, yes, uh, yes, definitely. So most um, individuals who try to enter the U.S. without a U.S. visa, um, uh, whether by coming to a port of entry or um, or crossing over the border, are immediately rejected by DHS border officials through a process called expedited removal. Um, one exception, and this is some of what's in the news right now is unaccompanied minors who are subject to special legal protections. But aside from the unaccompanied minors, um, those individuals who are put through this expedited removal process, um, if the person says that they have a fear of 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 return to their country, um, uh, they they then are detained for identity checks rather than being sent back right away, and a screening interview by an asylum officer for. Um, uh, the quote unquote credible fear of persecution. That's the it's a it's a sort of screening standard as to whether they they might be able to meet the standard that I, I mentioned earlier about well-founded fear of persecution based on one of the five grounds. If an individual passes the credible fear determination, they then can pursue an asylum case in an immigration court and are often released into the into the US. So this is very different than the resettlement process that I talked about earlier, where resettled refugees go through the entire adjudication and screening process outside of the US and are fully determined to meet the refugee standard before they come. Um, this, the legal standard is the same, as I mentioned, so persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution based on race, religion, national origin, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. This is a difficult standard to meet um, because it requires targeted persecution on one of these five grounds. So typically a situation of generalized violence is not going to be enough to be the basis for an asylum claim. Um, Many immigration court asylum cases are ultimately unsuccessful, but there are large case logs, case backlogs right now, which mean they can they can sometimes take years, often take years to resolve. Well, I'm glad you start, you you got into that aspect of the expedited removal because uh, you know as uh, as to our listeners out there wondering you know why are we talking about this in detail. One of the lesser known facts of the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998, which created the commission in the office of the State Department, it actually authorized the commission to examine uh, the U.S. government's treatment of asylum seekers in expedited removal, as you explain. And uh, so this is the one area of coverage outside of international religious freedom that we were mandated from the beginning. And we've had a number of reports. So if you could, Elizabeth, could you tell us a little bit about more about expedited remo removal and what uh, we've found over the years about this process and what kinds of reforms you know, we've recommended uh, based on our findings? Um, sure, absolutely. So expedited removal was a new process when IRFA was enacted, um, and Congress um, authorized this, the, these studies by USERF because of concern about the risk of erroneously returning asylum seekers through to persecution or torture, given the the speedy the speedy nature of this process and the and the and the lack of 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 judicial review unless unless the person um, raises a raises a claim of fear, um, USERF issued it, its first study on the treatment of asylum seekers in expedited removal all the way back in two thousand five, and that was based on extensive um, research and observations of. Um, uh, officials carrying out the process. Over the years, we've done several follow-up reports, the most recent of which was in 2016. 
In these reports, unfortunately, USERF consistently found serious flaws in the processing and detention of asylum seekers that no um, administration over the years has adequately addressed. Um, and uh, concerns more recently um, uh, are exacerbated by the fact that expedited removal, uh, its use has been expanded over the years. So more and more people are being, being put through that process. Um, among the findings of, of concern um, are that in, in, in the interviews observed, um, border officials often failed to follow the required procedures to identify asylum seekers and refer them for credible fear determination. So to have that assessment as to whether they, they had a sufficient fear to merit going forward with an asylum claim. So this presents a real risk that people could be, be erroneously being sent back. Um, USERF also found concerns about the conditions under which asylum seekers are, are, are detained, that these con conditions are more like prisons, um, which is not, uh, not appropriate for, um, uh, uh, for civil, civil detainees, especially ones who have been through a traumatic experience. Um, other issues include funding disparities, long backlogs, and a lack of high-level oversight of this process. Um, USERF welcomed in, Febu in February when President Biden issued an executive order mandating that the DHS secretary review the expedited removal process and recommend ways to improve it. And so we hope that um, some of USERF's longstanding recommendations will be in incorporated in those improvements. Um, these recommendations include appointing a high-level DHS official to oversee and coordinate the process, which involves no numerous agencies within DHS, as well as um, uh, immigration courts in DOJ. Um, we, we also see a real need for improving the quality assurance measures of the initial interview at the border, including videotaping and, and reviewing those. Um, the border officials um, need additional training. Um, we've recommended the use of non-prison-like detention facilities for asylum seekers um, while, they, while they wait to go through their credible fear interviews, um, and also um, allowing asylum officers who do the credible fear interviews to be able to grant asylum in clear-cut cases rather than sending them along to the backlogged immigration courts. Um, and finally, there's a compelling need for increased funding for asylum officers and immigration courts, especially with what the numbers of asylum claims have risen to in recent years. Now, one of the things I wanted to go back to real quick is uh, one thing that came out of the hearing that we held back in February was the process of vetting for those being considered, uh, you know, to be resettled. Going back to that issue, what can you tell us about the security vetting process and does that need to be overhauled or be more transparent or what were some of the things that uh, that stand out uh, with some of that uh, issue there? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. So so at that hearing, which uh, listeners can um, find both the, the recording of and a transcript of on our, our website, as well as 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 witness statements and summary, we had two um, two witnesses who are former DHS um, uh, senior officials, one from the uh, from during the Obama administration and one from during the Trump administration. And, and, and both sort of touched on this question of security vetting. Um, as, as I mentioned previously, resettled refugees go through an entire security vetting process while they're still abroad. And this is a, 
a very, very extensive and 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 detailed process that is um, involves numerous U.S. agencies and is continually, um, you know, evolving to address threats. Um, so these are these are it's clear from from our our research on the testimony that these are the most among the most vetted um, uh, individuals coming into the United States. Um, there, so the but one concern that was raised is that the the vetting needs to make sure that it does not become um, a barrier to the resettlement of bona fide refugees without the sufficient need for that level of vetting. So, for example, I mentioned the Lautenberg program um, for Iranian religious minorities, and there have been issues in recent years with um, a number of them getting getting caught up in um, the vetting process. Uh, and and not being able to move forward with no transparency about about the reasons why. So so there are concerns uh, at times about the 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 vetting being a potential um, barrier for um, deserving refugees. Well, we'll have to leave it right here. But I want to thank Elizabeth Cassidy, our director of research and policy, Yusuf, for her insights and, and deep knowledge on uh, these issues and. Uh, to learn more about our work on and recommendations on refugee and asylum issues, uh, and to read the transcript and testimonies uh, from our February hearing on refugees uh, fleeing religious persecution, please don't hesitate to visit our website at uh, www.uscirf.gov. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF, and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another Usurf Spotlight.